millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. This week, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is in the Ukrainian capital, Kiev. He's offered to mediate between Ukraine and Russia. He signed a deal with Ukraine to deepen defense cooperation at a time when Ankara is enmeshed in several local conflicts, but also seeking to repair relations with some of its fiercest rivals. What does Erdogan's Ukraine diplomacy say about Turkish foreign policy? In the shifting sands of Middle East relations, Saudi Arabia and Turkey have an increasingly fraught relationship. Heavyweights in the region vying for influence. There have been strains before. After the Saudi blockade of Qatar last year, Ankara sent troops there. The Turkish government has staunchly supported Qatar, for both nations have long been allies of the Muslim Brotherhood, much to the disapproval of the Saud family that sees them as terrorists. Turkey will take what is its right in the Mediterranean, in the Aegean, and in the Black Sea. We will never compromise on what belongs to us. A few years ago, Turkey was fighting with almost everyone. That was President Erdogan talking about part of his neighborhood. Erdogan's aspirations to help Islamist parties to power and play a lead role in the Middle East after the Arab revolutions had collapsed. Syrian President Bashar al-Assad had largely defeated Turkish-backed rebels. Ankara was locked in a destructive rivalry with the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia and Egypt. Qatar, its only ally in the Gulf, had been booted out of the Gulf Cooperation Council. Ankara was isolated in the East Mediterranean, with rivals seeking to press their maritime claims at Turkey's expense. All in all, it was a far cry from Erdogan's goal of the 2000s to have a zero-problems foreign policy. Turkey's willingness to send troops to Libya is being viewed as Ankara's latest play to gain a decisive foothold in the eastern Mediterranean. Erdogan is a strong supporter of the Siraj government in Tripoli, which is fighting a civil war against the Moscow-backed General Khalifa Haftar, who controls most of eastern Libya. Karabakh is Azerbaijan. Karabakh is now reunited with its motherland, putting an end to 30 years of waiting. Today, things look a bit different. A Turkish military intervention in Libya propped up the UN-recognized government in Tripoli, an ally of Turkey, and created space for peace talks. In the South Caucasus, Ankara backed an Azerbaijani offensive that saw Baku capture back areas near Nagorno-Karabakh. We just heard President Erdogan talking about it. In the aftermath of that war, Turkey started normalizing relations with its old adversary, Armenia. Relations with Russia have improved, even though Moscow and Ankara back opposing sides on several battlefields. And perhaps most striking, Turkey sought to repair relations with the UAE, Egypt and Israel. Turkey's relations with its NATO allies, especially the US and France, remain uneasy. At home, there's daunting economic challenges. But compared with a few years ago, Turkey's international standing is much improved. So is this by design, a course correction in Ankara, or does it simply reflect the evolving geopolitics of Turkey's neighbourhood? To talk about all this, I'm joined by Niga Gerksel, Crisis Group's Turkey director, who's calling in from Istanbul. Niga, welcome on. Hi, Richard, and thank you. I'm happy to join. 
So, Nigar, let's start with Erdogan's trip to Kiev. Uh, What should we expect from his Ukraine diplomacy? Well, I watched President Erdogan this morning on television. He was speaking from the airport before he um, left for Kiev, and he was underlining Turkey's support for the uh, territorial integrity of Ukraine and expressing his wish for a peaceful resolution uh, and whatnot. Uh, I think Turkey finds itself in a tricky spot in that Turkey's been exporting armed drones to Ukraine which Kiev has used in the battlefield against uh, pro-Russian separatists in eastern Ukraine. Um, Moscow, in return, had framed Turkey as a, as a playing a destabilizing role. Uh, and Turkey has been very vocal about um, particularly Crimea. Uh, as, a, as a NATO member, Turkey, going beyond NATO membership, has developed a close security relationship with Ukraine. Yet at the same time, it has a a transactional relationship with Russia that's very important for Turkey's economy and for multiple strategic interests. I think, broadly speaking, there are two lines of thought about the conundrum that Turkey finds itself in. Uh, Some people think that the Ukraine showdown is going to be the time for reckoning in Turkey's balancing act between uh, the West and Russia. In other words, it'll be the occasion where Turkey will have to choose one or the other and can't remain in neutral ground. Others think that Turkey will manage or or at least muddle through, um, continue providing Ukraine with arms, uh, but not confronting Russia, at least frontally, not take part in sanctions. Um, I tend to think the latter. Uh, I think Turkey and Russia have managed in other theaters. And um, perhaps the utility of deepening the thorn that Turkey has become in NATO, uh, cynically speaking, is worthwhile for, for, for Russia. Um, if the Ukraine-Russia war does materialize, it still won't be the first or, or in some ways even the most tricky um, test to Turkey's Russia-related balancing acts. Arguably, Russia's annexation of Crimea was a bigger blow to Turkey's interests. And relatively speaking, the Ankara leadership was under more pressure, at least from inside, to stand up to, to Russia over that, both because... Uh, it altered the military power balance in the Black Sea, the navies, and, and also because of the Crimean Tatar minority, who Ankara was um, seen as the custodian of. So we can't be sure how tensions will unfold. But um, so far, as far as I know, Putin is also scheduled to come to Turkey. I think he's going to announce the date after the Beijing uh, Olympics. But it should be in late February. So both sides uh, seem interested, at least in keeping uh, Turkey as a party in the dialogue. Maybe not a mediator, though. So we'll talk in more depth about Ankara's relations with Russia, the balancing act you talk about with the West. But could we kind of take a, a, a wider lens first? And as we talked about up top, there does seem to be this sort of more conciliatory approach to Erdogan's foreign policy today than there was a, a few years ago. I mean, is, is that right? And what would you say was driving it? Well, last month, uh, the Ankara leadership started using the term problem-free circle in conceptualizing Turkey's new foreign policy vision. Uh, this sounds a lot like AKP's um, zero problems with neighbors uh, concept uh, that it wanted to pursue before the Arab Spring. AKP is the ruling uh, Erdogan's Justice and Development Party. Indeed, and actually they call themselves AK Party. I mean, I think there have been foreign policy failures, but also victories that, that have brought the AK Party back sort of full circle. Um, and there's also the economy. Uh, by failures, for example, the regional leadership ambition that rested on, on close ties with Muslim Brotherhood affiliates um, that, that Dunker expected to rise to power after the Arab Spring, uh, that obviously failed and the mobilization of Israel, Egypt, UAE um, uh, has, has created too many setbacks for Ankara, um, uh, both that, both strategically and economically and, and also in the sort of propaganda wars or, or struggles. Um, but victories have also brought Turkey to back to where it is now uh, in that some of Turkey's more assertive policies did manage to secure Turkey's essential interests, at least so far in Syria, in Libya, um, and arguably in, in, in the Caucasus. Uh, but, but Turkey seems to have gotten as far as it can in, in these places via military means. And so now it needs to translate these into diplomatic or economic gains. You can also sort of see a realization in some quarters in Ankara that it's gotten as much as it, it can from playing Russia against the West. Uh, and, and vice versa, in that, you know, Turkey may have used Russia to enhance its negotiation power, but Russia also used Turkey to drive a wedge 
in NATO and erode trust between Turkey and its Western allies. And I think the cycle ultimately left Turkey more vulnerable to Russia and at the same time reduced Turkey's um, strategic and economic dividends that it, that it could obtain from its Western allies. So, um, and this brings me to the economy. Uh, Turkey really needs foreign investment and, and needs to sell to foreign markets uh, it, to, to restore the economy. Um, and, and that necessitates that it, it reduces adversarial relations. So we'll talk about a few of the a few of the places where Turkey is involved in a moment. But is Erdogan's support declining as as much as people in the West perceive it to be? I mean, hasn't that been a, a refrain for many years of uh, Western capitals? Yes, that has been the case before. Um, uh, I think one big difference is the economy. I mean, not to say that the public opinion polls are, are showing a very drastic drop in support, um, but you you do see that. Even, even, even the efforts of the, of the president to, um, maintain people in the economic governance, uh, positions has been difficult. There's, there's very high rotation and, and the names, uh, that are being brought, uh, to the helm of the economy, uh, show that very few qualified people are left who are willing to take on this burden. I think it's a mixed picture because at the same time, the economy is growing. And exporters are doing very well. You know, sometimes the picture that's drawn in the West of, of, of imminent collapse um, uh, can also be misleading. Um, I, I, I think it's a wait and see situation. And in terms of, I mean, his his what elections next year? Uh, you know, that in terms of how that impacts foreign policy, it, it means what he has to keep the nationalists on board, or he just has to keep things you know, fairly calm or he needs to deliver some major foreign policy achievements. I mean, what, what, is, what, are, what are the impacts of, the, of, you know, a vote next year on the way uh, President Erdogan is, is seeing what he's doing abroad? Um, I think there are a couple of different ways uh, he could go. For the last few years, he's been capitalizing on, on, on nationalist constituencies um, he could do more of the same. He could do U-turn still uh, to bring sort of the the, the center right that that's now seems to be slipping a, a little bit towards uh, a couple of opposition parties to bring them on board. I think he would have to reconceptualize relations with the West and, and bring the economy back on track. He could try to again uh, win over conservative Kurds um, through at least some policies that address some of their grievances, which doesn't necessarily uh, mean. Uh, reaching out to the PKK, and he may not have decided himself. But I think there are a couple of, of, of alternative routes that he might think of taking. Uh, he also could bring the elections to an earlier date. If he sees that he's doing well at a particular time, he can call for early elections. Um, uh, he can change the electoral laws. And um, you know, I think he has a toolbox available. And so let's uh, talk then about Libya, uh, which is sort of one area where you know, at least, you know, some months ago, it looked as though Turkey's military intervention turned the course of the war, as we said, you know, created space for peace talks. So how is that intervention viewed now in, in Ankara? I mean, is it still perceived as a success? I think they're still trying to sell it to the public and that very recently, I think last week, the presidency uh, was made a statement saying they expected a Turkish a Turkey-friendly government to come to power in Libya and have high hopes for increased uh, trade. Um, I, I think it's safe to say Turkey did achieve its immediate objectives in Libya, but but given the political outlook uh, of 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 Libya is still uncertain, it may be premature for for a full assessment. And by immediate objectives, um, I mean exactly what you said: the stopping the military takeover. Uh, of Tripoli by Haftar and sort of preventing, thus preventing a UAE Egyptian led, um, uh, lead in, in, in Libya. Um, uh, I think just, just, just ensuring that the Siraj government wasn't toppled, um, uh, is seen as, as, as a win. And Turkey still has military presence, uh, controlling a few bases in Libya. Um, so it's still in the game there. It, it achieved the maritime deal. That was important, even though its legal basis is, is questionable. And, and just to clarify, that was a deal between Ankara and the Siraj government in Libya that demarcated part of the eastern Mediterranean. I mean, it's like the maritime jurisdiction areas, and it cut into Greece's claimed maritime areas. 
Greece has a claimed zone uh, and has its own effort to strike a maritime jurisdiction deal with with Egypt. So it's it's cutting into two countries' claims. I, I think Greece is the big one, and uh, arguably also Egypt. Um, and supposedly it did so in order to sort of spoil the plans of a of a of a gas pipeline that w- w- was being designed or, or foreseen to carry natural gas from Cyprus to uh, Europe, which is all but has all but been declared unviable already. Um, so by now it it may not be as um, as useful as it was seen in two thousand nineteen. But yes, the the maritime uh, MOU of of this maritime agreement was signed on the same day that, that Turkey signed uh, a security MOU uh, with the Saraj government. And in a way, it, it's um, it, from the perspective of Turkish audiences, it was worthwhile keeping the Saraj government in place in order to be able to um, uh, have that maritime deal um, uh, for Turkey. Um, as I said, it, its legal basis it does is not recognized uh, by any country except for Libya and Turkey, and even the Libyan Parliament, as far as I know, ha- hasn't actually I know um, ratified it either. So um, Turkish opposition figures sometimes say that um, uh, it, it's it, it, it it's it's been presented as a as a as a as a victory, but is um, less so than. Than the Turkish media would um, have it be seen as. Um, I think it's premature in a way to to assess the financial benefits too that that Turkey will extract from from Libya. So far, there have been agreements reached, but um, not much has materialized uh, because of the political uncertainty there. The big projects haven't kicked off, and as far as I know, the the, the unfreezing of of uh, the frozen contracts of Turkish firms back from the days of Gaddafi uh, hasn't taken place yet. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, so I think it's, it's, it, it, there's a lot still unknown when it comes to Libya, but it is by and large seen as, as a worthwhile intervention. And one of the things that, uh, that Turkey did in, uh, in Libya, I mean, it, it, as you said, it, as we talked about it, prevented the uh, takeover of Tripoli by Haftar. It then pushed back Haftar's forces, you know, from uh, from Western Libya. But uh, it 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 didn't go all the way. It, it kind of uh, stopped halfway, so it didn't go back and and try to capture Turkey. Didn't support uh, the its allies. Uh, uh, Tripoli aligned forces pushing forward all the way to Tobruk. It sort of stopped halfway, which uh, sort of meant that that Egypt didn't get too involved, and then created space for this for this peace deal. So, sort of in some ways, Turkey intervened, uh, saved the government, but then also didn't sort of pursue an all-out military victory, uh, which you know in many ways seems seems sensible. So, sort of knew when to stop. I mean, is that? Is that is that is that aspect of of what Ankara did sort of is is that understood in in I mean is that was that was that deliberate policy or was it something that was you know largely responding to international pressure um, you know how how much how much has that has that sort of what's the word how much has that restraint uh, understood as as being part of the the story in Libya. Well, I th- yeah, I think it 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 looks like it was sort of a calculated cost benefit assessment of the utility of venturing further, um, sort of foreseeing that there would be a negative spin, um, otherwise internationally and 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 locally also, I would assume, among Haftar's uh, supporters and 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 um, other countries that supported him. Um, but there's also a rumor, and this might also be to discredit Turkey, or it might not be, I don't know, um, that there was an airstrike on a base um, where Turkey was present during the visit of the defense minister of Turkey, Hulusi Akar, um, and that may have been a signal, perhaps from Russia, that it was time to stop. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know um, whether this w- was the case, but... Um, I guess, nevertheless, uh, Turkey having stopped, um, perhaps paved the way for the normalization effort that, that, that 
or made it more easy for for Turkey to be able to uh, start trying to mend ties with with the UAE and 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 Egypt as it appears to be trying to currently. And we'll talk about those efforts to repair relations with the UAE and Egypt in a moment. But could we talk first about this other Turkish intervention from around the same time, which was its backing with drones, military support for Azerbaijan's offensive in late 2020 that captured back these territories next to Nagorno-Karabakh that had been occupied for, for decades by Armenian settlers. How is that now seen from Ankara? Well, I think it's seen by and large as a necessary evil. <laughs> when we talk to Turkish officials, they say it wasn't ideal. They would have much rather get to this um, same picture uh, by diplomatic means. And that's precisely what they say they had on the table uh, for many years, um, was that, that, that Armenian forces withdraw from the regions the, the, they're called rayons that, that lie outside of, of, of the Nagorno-Karabakh enclave. And in return, Turkey opens borders with Armenia and establishes diplomatic relations and starts the railways and, and proceeds with regional integration. Um, I, I think there was a loss of hope that this was ever going to happen at, at the table. It had become too difficult for the Armenian administrations to contemplate that, according to Turkish officials. And um, and Turkey was sticking to its decision in 1993 when Ankara broke off talks to establish diplomatic relations with Yerevan. Um, it, it put a condition out there that uh, that those territories be returned um, uh, before relations are normalized. And it, it, it stuck to that position for, what is it now, 30 years? But I think Baku and Ankara were both well aware, I mean, you talk about restraint, well aware that going further than they did um, into Armenian populated territories would bring in Russian pushback, um, as well as scenes that, that, that would have made the Armenian claims of, of a sort of second genocide in the making resonate in, in the West. Um, I, I think it also wouldn't have been feasible for Baku um, to, to take control over those, Nagorno uh, Karabakh itself, without a form of, of ethnic cleansing. So, um, I mean, from Turkey's perspective, um, it, it, there, there needed to be little objection um, for Azerbaijan to regain the territories from which around 600,000 or up to 600,000 Azerbaijanis had been displaced, um, particularly given the, the mediation efforts were totally uh, stalemated. Um, uh, I have heard Turkish officials say that if they had thought there was any other way for this to be done, uh, that, that war would not have been preferred. But Azerbaijan is really the key to, to Turkey's influence in, in the region. Despite all the arguments over the years for Turkey to normalize relations, it didn't look like it was going to be able to do so with Armenia, uh, without Azerbaijan being on board. So obviously it, it was a very, you know, in the end, it ended up being quite a bloody conflict. I think, what, 7,000 people were killed. But since then, there has been, as you talked about, moves towards normalization between Armenia and Turkey, which have never had normal diplomatic relations. So there was this meeting, what, in, in, in mid-January uh, in Moscow uh, between Turkish and Armenian officials. How did that go? So both sides said it was a, a very constructive meeting. They sounded upbeat and in private as well. I heard that both sides were pleased. Uh, so it wasn't just a public narrative, apparently. Um, and yesterday, the first flight uh, arrived in Istanbul from Yerevan. And uh, I was actually listening live on, on the radio um, and they were cheering for the Armenian people who got off the plane. And apparently at night there was also going to be a plane back. So the that's been restored, um, uh, direct flights. And I think it's going to be a step-by-step -step approach. Um, uh, I mean, Ankara still keeps Azerbaijan very much in the loop. They share information. They want to make sure Azerbaijan's on board. The risk there, of course, is that if there's a serious level of escalation between Armenia and Azerbaijan in the Nagorno-Karabakh um, uh, theater, then one would hope this doesn't spill over into the Armenia-Turkey talks. You know, it seems very clear from the uh, statements that come out of the Turkish uh, MFA that there is a certain linkage still. Uh, between uh, Armenia-Azerbaijan uh, talks and Armenia-Turkey talks. I think the fact that Turkey wants the process to go slowly and um, Yerevan seems to be more interested in um, uh, being able to point to dividends to their society sooner rather than later, that could be 
uh, an issue of, of divergence. And I think there's also the, the, the issue that, that Turkey sees this as a very sort of practical process where you open borders, um, you start trade, you start investment and sort of social grievances will um, uh, pass in time and identity issues will sort of melt away. And of course, that's not that's not the way it is. Um, and, and with liberal voices in Turkey as silenced as they are, you know, one also worries that that sort of reconciliation aspect will be missing and that, you know, the processes that the two societies need to go through might not be addressed necessarily. But I think it's it so far looks promising. And were relations between Turkey and and, uh, and Armenia to, to normalize goods flowing across the border, the economic benefits presumably for the Caucasus would be huge. Yes, I mean, it's always seen as a, as a way to counterbalance Russia in the long term. I think in the short term, Turkey is very cautious about, about not stepping on, on Russia's toes because it knows that Russia can act as a spoiler at any moment. It has a very strong grip over Armenia. And if, if it looks like anybody is using this process to elbow out Russia, I think that will spell the end of it. Um, so even though in the short term, Ankara's very uh, careful about including, which is why they accepted the meeting to be in Moscow. It wasn't their first choice. Um, uh, but I think in the longer term, between the lines, you can hear uh, people talking about how in time, uh, with sort of that the bridge that Turkey provides can provide to Armenia to 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 Europe and and sort of the um, more Turkish um, flows into Armenia, economic and whatnot. That 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 it may be a um, at least a diversification uh, in Armenia to the Russian grip. So, I mean, if I can put it crudely, Turkey seems to have come out quite well from from Ankara's perspective, out of the, the war. But Russia came out even better, right? I mean, brokered the end to the fighting, now has troops in the region for the first time in decades. It hosted the talks in January, as you said, it really kind of, you know, is in the driving seat in some ways of the normalisation between Turkey and Armenia. So the fact that Moscow's done so well, I mean, does that temper the way Turkey sees what happened? Well, yeah, I think when, when Ankara officials say that it wasn't ideal, uh, one the, the thing they mainly mean is that it, it ended up happening with Russian troops uh, on the ground or peacekeepers. Um, uh, but they do say that if it wasn't for Turkey, it would only be Russia present on the field. So one Turkish diplomat said to me, you know, instead of complaining so much, the West should be happy that there's a NATO member on the ground because otherwise, I mean, the whole idea of an east-west corridor, which was a sort of a Western conception, is being made possible with Turkey's efforts and, you know, no thanks to the West. Turkish diplomats will say that they find that Russia is the only party that um, uh, has the resolve that's necessary in some of these conflicts in the neighborhood. And so um, there's no choice but to um, uh, um, deal with Moscow in these scenes. I, I mean, I think it's, 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 uh, there's a recognition in Turkey that this is yet another theater where, um, Russia has the upper hand. I mean, when we're talking about winners and losers, there's also Iran. And I think Iran, uh, um, has been a little concerned, particularly the plans for a railway from, uh, Nachivan to, uh, you know, across Armenia has, has worried um, Tehran because this um, they they think it may uh, disrupt their sort of north northwards route through Armenia that they were using, and they also were very upset about Israel's strong presence in in Azerbaijan. Israel was the number one um, provider of military uh, equipment to Azerbaijan, and Iran claims that um, Israel is using uh, Azerbaijani territory to infiltrate now into into Iran. And uh, I mean, Iran, you know, it may, may be a relative to, to Russia and Turkey, maybe a minor actor in, in the Caucasus. But if, if, if Iran has problems with Turkey in the Caucasus, it can very well deliver its displeasure in, in other theaters. And I've heard Turkish officials worry about um, Iranian support to PKK or Iranian action that, you know, letting in refugees into Turkey, almost almost guiding them into Turkey or taking advantage of, of other vulnerabilities um, that Turkey has. So it's really hard to contain the dynamics in one theater from spilling over into another theater. Uh, another conflict when when the same actors are, are present, and I think Turkey has that issue both both with Iran and, and Russia. 
So in essence, conflicts that are in principle entirely unconnected, like Syria and the South Caucasus, for example, become linked through the involvement of outside powers. And it's not just about Turkey taking allied Syrian fighters to different war zones. You know, It's more that outside powers involved, if they don't like something that's happening in one place, they can escalate against a regional rival in another. I think that's been a particular issue, the, the spillover um, of, of one conflict to another, uh, vis-a-vis uh, Idlib in Syria, where um, you know, Russia holds the, the reins in um, enabling the uh, Assad regime to pursue assaults on, um, uh, in the northwest. And Turkey sees this as, as a really national security uh, issue almost, because the flow of refugees from that area um, uh, to Turkey's borders, you know, brings with it economic and political burdens. It's actually, there was a, a poll I read last week that, that had, uh, the refugee issue as the number one problem, according to, um, the Turkish. Well, number one was the economy, uh, in, in most of Turkey, except for the border regions. And, and number two was refugees. Um, but in the border regions, number one was refugees. So it's really, uh, particularly as elections near in Turkey, I think, um, Ankara would do almost anything. Um, to to prevent more refugees from from piling up at its border and entering the country, and that really gives Russia um, uh, leverages that it can use in 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 other conflicts. You know, it could be um, uh, the Caucasus could feasibly be one of them. Generally, though, and and, and Nigar, tell me tell me if this is wrong, but in Idlib, this rebel-held part of Syria's northwest, Turkey's taken some pretty clear steps, including sending in troops to show that it really doesn't want a regime offensive that, as you say, could push millions more Syrians into Turkey. And that, combined with Russia's reluctance to anger Turkey, uh, has meant that Moscow has, in effect, refused to back a, a regime offensive into Idlib. But what you're saying is that if... President Putin, if Moscow is frustrated at Turkey and the Caucasus, let's say, or somewhere else, it can kind of put a squeeze on parts of Idlib. Well, I'm saying that the threat that it do so is 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 hanging over Turkey at all times. Whether it actually will play that card, whether it's in its interest to play that card, I think is more um, uh, questionable. In fact, um, I hear from our Syria colleagues that it really wouldn't be in Russia's interest to, to do that anymore and that Turkey's positioned itself um, quite strongly uh, in Idlib, particularly since 2020 um, after after a year-long regime offensive towards Idlib. Uh, Turkey deployed troops on the ground and in parallel pursued diplomacy uh, with, with Moscow and effectively halted the fighting for two years now. So, I mean, I, I think in a way uh, it, it may even be outdated to say that, that, that Russia uh, could slice off territory in, in Idlib um, uh, whenever it wants to. Um, but there is this, this feeling in, in, in Turkey that, um, that a, a vulnerability on that front still. But by and large, Ankara um, officials that support this policy see it as a win-win in that in a humanitarian sense uh, for Syrians in the Northwest, it's been good that they haven't been displaced. And, and obviously for Turkey, um, uh, not having more than the already 4 million uh, Syrians it has in the country is really critical. But now that Russia has realized this is such an existential issue for Turkey, and given it wants to preserve that relationship, the risk is maybe diminished. So part of Turkey's Idlib policy has been to work with, or, or at least have some sort of you know, tacit understanding with Hayat Takhar al-Sham, which you know, used to be Jabhat al-Nusra, an al-Qaeda affiliate. So how controversial is that in Ankara? Well, I think Turkey did try at some point to to support uh, rebels against the against the HTS, and then realized that that was a battle they couldn't win um, because HTS is is well entrenched locally. Uh, but definitely, it's controversial in Turkey. It's not even discussed very much, um, uh, partially because it doesn't. It, 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 there are a lot of people, even within the state, who don't like the thought. But we are where we are, and uh, I think Turkey doesn't really see an alternative. Uh, to the policy that is pursuing now that wouldn't create massive refugee flows and jihadists scattering around the region and uh, sort of, um, you know, an end that that wouldn't be in in the interests of of anyone, really. And beyond Idlib, looking at Syria policy more broadly, how much talk is there in Ankara about striking a deal with Syrian President Bashar al-Assad himself? I mean, if Ankara is seeking to normalise with the Emirates... 
the Emirates itself is taking steps to normalise relations with Assad. Could Ankara sort of do the same? Do people in Turkey see that as a way of potentially getting refugees home, for example, or preventing more coming or dealing with the, the, the YPG, the Kurdish forces that control much of northeast Syria that are closely linked to the PKK, the, you know, the Kurdish insurgency in Turkey that you know, Turkey and many others designate as a terrorist organisation. You know, you, you raise an interesting point because the social media is full of calls that Turkey do so, um, uh, normalize with Assad, in other words. It's very popular in Turkish society, mostly because it's seen as the surest way to get Syrian refugees back to their country. And there's also an assumption that it would pave the way for the Assad regime to, to curtail YPG. So yes, it's a very popular idea. Um, even among nationalists that support uh, the AK Party government, um, you you hear calls for um, normalization with with Assad um, to be next. Uh, but the reality is that 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 most refugees are not going to return as long as Assad is in power. And um, in in return for normalization, Damascus would demand that Turkey withdraw its troops um, from from the from the north. Uh, start stop supporting the rebel factions in Syria. It would actually, in, in a way, be a, a, a big embarrassment to Turkey as well. Um, but it would also probably lead to even more flows of refugees from the areas that now the Turkish-backed rebels control. Um, and, and moreover, as far as I hear from our Syria um, uh, analyst, it's 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 very likely that Damascus would not be able to weaken uh, YPG even if it tried, um, given the military power that um, YPG has amassed. So as much as it's a popular um, uh, call in Turkish society, uh, I think the counter arguments probably outweigh the eventuality. And so with the YPG now in, in general, I mean, this was obviously this was a source of, you know, big friction in the Turkey-US relations, continues to, to support the YPG or the or the Syrian Democratic Forces, which is sort of the umbrella in which the YPG leads and operates in. Um, but what is Turkey's policy now towards the YPG? What is it, what is it hoping uh, that is going to happen over the next few years? I, I think the Northeast is, continues to be a source of deep concern in, in Turkey. It, it, Ankara sees the formation of a statelet effectively controlled by PKK. And um, from this territory, we're seeing an increased number of IED attacks um, targeting Turkish security forces and, and Turkey-backed rebels in northwest Syria. In a, in a sense, the conflict that used to take place in southeast Anatolia um, has, has shifted to north Iraq and, and in increasingly uh, in the last year to, to, to Syria, where at some point there was an effort to separate YPG uh, or, or make it more independent from PKK. But um, that, that effort, I would say, um, has all but failed, where PKK has increased its um, uh, presence in the cadres of, of, and its control over, over YPG, or this is the way that, that Turkey sees it. And the U.S. support for YPG is, 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 is maybe the, the lead grievance of, of Ankara towards Washington. But all that being said, um, uh, I think some Turkish officials will privately acknowledge that by now, by where we are at this point, the U.S. stepping out um, wouldn't really help because otherwise Turkey would, would need to negotiate with Russia over the Northeast as well. So um, there's a little bit of a, you know, sometimes there'll be calls for more incursions into Syria and, and a little bit of a nationalist excitement over that prospect. But but it seems like there are no good choices for Ankara right now in the Northeast. And how does Ankara see prospects for, I mean, one of the, one of the ideas is that you know, the U.S. pushed the YPG to sort of disassociate itself, disconnect uh, more explicitly from the PKK. Does Ankara see that as in any way possible? I don't think Ankara ever saw it as possible, but um, to the extent that they had an inkling of, of, of hope, I think it's diminished and that um, uh, the PKK, perhaps because it's squeezed in Iraq um, more and, and with the drones there have really been a game changer, um, BKK is asserting itself more in Syria now, and I think YPG, sort of the the people in YPG who dared um, talk about uh, um, becoming more independent from PKK uh, are scared of doing that now. Um, so I, I don't think that um, prospect um, looks, even to those that thought it was possible, it, I think it looks less and less possible.
So what about the maritime disputes in the Eastern Mediterranean that we touched on earlier? Now, some relate to Cyprus, where UN negotiated talks between Greek Cypriots, Turkish Cypriots have stalled. But what, just a couple of years ago, tensions were really very high between Ankara and Athens, between Turkey and Greece. But what now, they've, they've calmed a bit? Well, there's still tensions at sea, uh, but they peaked uh, in like mid-2020 when, when military ships of, of Turkey and Greece came very close to uh, possibly a more serious confrontation. Um, and we saw sort of hardliners in Turkey um, mobilize the Turkish public behind uh, maximalist maritime claims. And, and Greece at the same time was seizing the opportunity of Ankara's loneliness uh, to benefit at Turkey's expense, um, or that's the way it was seen in Ankara. Um, and Turkey's relations were strained with, with the US and, and the EU at the same time. And so the, from Ankara's perspective and Turkish society's perspective, there's sort of the, the, there was an appearance of being under siege. Um, uh, I, I think the Turkey-Greece showdown was mostly brinkmanship. It's mostly calmed down, but the underlying problems still exist. I mean, one, of course, the sovereignty disputes um, haven't been solved and they won't be anytime soon, but at least regular channels of dialogue have been restored, both between diplomats and, and between militaries. I think one significant development is that the viability of the East Med gas pipeline that Turkey was mobilized against is all but ended. But the tensions that existed before regarding the exploration of gas around um, Cyprus, that is continuing. And, and, and the Turkish position is that it's a violation of Turkish Cypriot rights because they should also have a say and, a, uh, and some revenue. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the escalation is somewhat shifted towards uh, Cyprus more. I would say on the Turkey EU front, um, which was an important component of the East Med showdown, nothing significant has changed. We do see a little bit less inflammatory exchanges between Ankara and EU capitals nowadays, though I must say Erdogan this morning at the airport was, was, was speaking pretty loud about migrant pushbacks in Greece and um, how they don't, <laughs> they don't abide by their own principles. So I, I might have to take that point back. Um, in relations with France, you know, France has been probably the EU country most involved uh, and, and most vested on, on the side of, of, of Greek Cypriots and, and Greeks. They're still, still soured. Um, uh, for, for many reasons, both related to the East Med and not. Um, but in a in general sense, there's a relative quiet, uh, between Turkey and the EU, and probably neither side has an incentive to irritate the other with, with very inflammatory statements. So you've touched on relations with Europe, but what about now relations with, with the US, which have also been, you know, pretty rocky over the past few years? You know, we talked about the US support to, to the YPG. Uh, also, these allegations that, that the US was involved in the attempted 2016 coup, the person everyone believes masterminded the coup, Petula Gulan, is based in, in the US. And then from the US perspective, there was Turkey's decision to uh, purchase the Russian S-400 defense systems, triggered US sanctions on Turkey. And so it's been a sort of bumpy, bumpy ride over the past few years. But what, since, since a, a year into the Biden administration, I mean, how are how are Turkey-U.S. relations now? I mean, actually, the Turkey-U.S. relations have been rather uneventful. There, there are people in, in Ankara who have um, been thinking hard and good about how to restore and reset the relationship, but uh, they are under the impression that it's not a priority at the moment for the Biden administration. I've been told by some Turkish officials that, you know, this is just... That, that, that for Turkey, for, for the U.S. to focus on China and Russia, all the more reason why it needs to invest in its relationship with, with Turkey, because Turkey is the best positioned country to counterbalance Russia in, in various theaters and, and in the Middle East. If the U.S. wants to um, uh, withdraw, then, you know, it, it can find a stable partner in Turkey, particularly now that Turkey is normalizing relations or trying to with um, with with Israel and UAE and, and with, with regard to Iran. Some Turkish officials have said there's no alternative to Turkey um, uh, in terms of engaging Iran, either if the nuclear deal goes uh, through or, or it doesn't. So Turkey has been trying to frame itself as strategically important for the United States. Afghanistan was supposed to be one area where Turkey was going to make itself useful. That, that maybe took some different turns. 
Um, but they, they say that they pick up disinterests and maybe they say that maybe Washington is waiting for the elections. About S-400s, I think there is a recognition widely that that was a mistake. Um, but, but we are where we are and Turkey's been looking for ways to start working groups with Washington, uh, how, how to, um, sort of navigate the situation now. We don't want to make too large a claim, but the feeling is that those, as those, that missile defense is not going to be activated and, and Turkey will defend itself sometimes saying that, um, uh, the only reason it went that route is because it was being denied. Um, and, and that it's being left out of the F-35 program is, is, is going to be the, to the detriment of, of the entire Western alliance. I think democracy is a big issue in that um, the rule of law in Turkey is such that it's hard to see it um, uh, improving very much in the near future. And um, with Biden's focus on, on uh, human rights and democracy, um, that is going to continue to be a, an issue uh, that spoils relations. How optimistic and how optimistic should we be for the normalization with the UAE and Israel, Egypt? Well, it seems like UAE is um, proceeding first. Crown Prince visited uh, Turkey in November. It was a first visit for 10 years. And um, I believe Erdogan is scheduled to go there. Um, I mean, both sides have been sort of displaying satisfaction with talks. Relations were kickstarted by, by visits on the intelligence, um, uh, teams. Um, since August, I, I believe there have been more dialogue. It appears to entail investment of UAE and energy and in the defense industry of Turkey, notably. I think with the Muslim Brotherhood agenda of Ankara having been largely left behind, that's made this possible. As far as I know, Turkey's restricted the Muslim Brotherhood broadcasts from Istanbul to the Arab world. At the same time, um, there was a, um, a Turkish mafia boss, Sedat Peker, um, who was based in, in the UAE from where he was um, broadcasting videos that revealed sort of dirty business between uh, of, of Turkish government officials. The UAE is also, as I understand, restricted his broadcast. So they've mutually um, done that. Um, uh, uh, I, th- I think Erdogan pre- uh, recently mentioned that they plan to take similar steps as they are with UAE, with Israel and Egypt. Um, I talked to somebody uh, in Ankara uh, that's linked to the presidency who said that he thought 60% of Turkey's foreign policy problems would be solved if these three relations were normalized. And so, Nigar, can we just end on one kind of bigger picture question, a sort of broader one on, on Turkish foreign policy? I mean, in some ways, when people talk about assertive regional powers, Turkey's kind of the archetype, right? I mean, especially because of its strategic geography, it's enmeshed in several conflicts, it's facing off against different rivals, often views, as you talked about, local conflicts through the prisms of its interests or its rivalries elsewhere. It's an increasing supplier of drones to different warring parties. When I mean, we talked about Libya, Azerbaijan and, and Ukraine, but, but also uh, Ethiopia recently. I mean, how much should we see sort of Turkey's international activism as sort of reflecting core Turkish interests in a changing and more dangerous world? And how much should we see it more a reflection of Erdogan's own personalized politics? I think the aspects that have been personalized, the ideological twists seem to be linked to the political culture that Erdogan comes from. But the ambition to have a greater say in affairs of the of the region and stake out a more influence, I think is here to stay. I think it could be pursued in, in different ways. Restoring relations with the West could be much easier with a different administration. There's some things that are here to stay. The the view that that the US doesn't necessarily get its way when it engages, you know, from Afghanistan to Iraq, from Crimea to Syria. I think there's a sense of um Turkey needing to have a fear reign in 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 where, what it pursues in which um theater according to its own interests there's also a questioning of the higher moral ground of the west that really resonates in in turkish society 
I think these can be evoked uh, in the future by other leaderships as well. But definitely Turkey is, I think, poised to take advantage of, of shifts in power balances where, where it sees them, um, but, but might be more, more interested in doing so in cooperation uh, with, with Western allies, uh, more so than we've seen in the last few years. I remember you wrote a piece a few, well, a couple of years ago now, uh, which sort of questioned this question of, uh, you know, who lost Turkey for the West. And I think you argued that, you know, Turkey had always sought to balance its relations with the West, with relations with, with others. Uh, and But is it sort of that, that Anchor's greater assertiveness abo- abroad reflects a, a sort of recognition that it can no longer rely on anyone to protect its interests except except itself, or that, it, that Ankara's recognition that you know if it wants to protect its interests in a complete in a in a in a in a more competitive, uh, more dangerous world, then it needs to do that more itself. Yeah, I think that view does exist. Um, the view that Turkey has to pick itself up by its own bootstraps. Uh, you know that, that ultimately, um, you know, if Turkey threats faces security threats um, that 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 Western countries don't, then Turkey is going to have to deal with them by itself instead of waiting, um, waiting for support. Or if Turkey's not sold certain military equipment that it needs, it's going to have to produce it itself or or find it from somewhere else. Um, uh, you know, the, and, and I think this also reflects shifts in the world where if you don't get it from the West, you can find somebody else to give it to you. And this is also the case in, in, in the economic, um, sense. Uh, when you look at the normalization, um, sort of scheme that this government has put out, you, you don't really see much of the West, but I think that's also a function of, of, of the democratic track record and, and the fact that that's very difficult to, to correct right now. Whereas one can foresee, I think, in the Turkish society, there is a strong um, push for more balance of power, more rule of law. And if those do um, materialize, then I, I think the willingness for Western allies to, or the appetite to, to stand up for, for Turkey's national interests might also increase. So I think there are many variables, and some of them relate to, to domestic politics. And Turkey can make very dramatic shifts in, in short amounts of time, so it's very hard to speculate about this country. Igor, thanks very much. That was really a tour de force, so thank you. Thank you, Richard, for having me on the podcast. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Naz will be back with us next week. You can find all of our work, including on the many aspects of Turkish foreign policy, its involvement in several of the conflicts that we work on, on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. Thanks, of course, to our producers, Sam Bendick, Kevin Murphy. Thanks to Finn Johnson, who helps out with production. And thanks, as ever, to all our listeners. If you have any suggestions, tips or feedback, please do get in touch, uh, podcasts at crisisgroup.org. If you like the show, give us a positive rating or review, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.